Hi, Ulf here. A while back, I had the thrill of my life talking to author Bill Nolan. William, Bill Nolan is most known for his book, Logan's Run, that he co-wrote together with George Clayton Johnson. May I present Bill Nolan? I'm fascinated about the, the screenwriting process. Yes. And, and the fact that, uh, that the Maltese Falcon was one of the few, if not the only one, that you know of where they actually were true to the original material. Yeah, that was a pure accident where the producer walked into the secretary's office and found a, a rough draft of, of what would have been a screenplay by John Huston, but she had set it up in a screenplay form uh, as a model for him to work with for his screenplay. Jack Warner saw it, congratulated him for a wonderful script and said, shoot it that way. And that's why the Maltese Falcon is so faithful, because it, it literally was shot from the book itself. Right. And you mentioned that, that you knew about producers who actually worked this way, who were faithful to the material. Yeah, well, I, was, I, I worked 33 years in the industry, uh, the, the industry being films and television. And I worked most of those years with a man named Dan Curtis. Dan Curtis is the man who did a, a series of, of movies of the week. And mm -hmm. uh, I worked on, on 17 of them with him. And... Uh, they included the Norlis tapes, with, uh, and they included the Turn of the Screw, uh, the, the famous uh, Henry James novella that I adapted for television for Dan. Mm -hmm. And Dan was amazing because he was both a director and a producer and a, and a co-writer, too. He, he, could, he could understand story. He could understand production values. He was an expert on lenses. He could say, I think we need a so-and-so lens here and another. So he, so he was able to give an auteur aspect to it and, and create something genuine which mm -hmm. reflected what the writer really had in mind so when i wrote the script for uh, turn of the screw he took it to london and got lynn redgrave to play the governess it's, it's about uh, a, a wicked man who tries to take the souls of two children mm -hmm. who are being protected by this governess and and she has to protect their souls and so i wrote the whole thing based on the novella by henry james and he took it to london and he shot it word for word wow. and that's very unusual i wow. mean I, I i said after that i said okay i want to work with this man again right. and that's why we work together so much he shot things that i wrote the way i wrote them right Right. There is really no difference between, in, really in every aspect, between a, a film producer, a filmmaker, and an, an author. I mean, as an author, you are seeing what is happening, which means you can picture how this should look. Yes, right? but the minute, you, the minute you sell your work to a studio, you have lost control of that work. Right. And in the case of Logan's Run, for example, I sold all film and television rights for astronomically high sum. I had the most that, that had ever been paid for a science fiction property in the, in the 1960s, $100,000. That, that was, that was very, it's equivalent to over a million, a couple wow. of million today. Right. Uh, so, so I had no control beyond that point. They, they, they could call it gone with the wind and then, and, and they could put Mickey Mouse in it and I wouldn't, I wouldn't have any control. Luckily, they didn't do that. Logan's Run was actually your first novel. That's right. Uh, when I was in high school, at the age of 16, I started a novel called The Trail to Adventure. It was a kind of a combination of uh, ideas of my own and, and, a, and a copy of Max Brand, the Western writer who did Desert Rides Again and Dr. Kildare. I was a big Max Brand fan, so I wrote my own Max Brand uh, 
uh, novel, and I got about 15,000 words into it, and then I got completely lost. I didn't know what to do, and so I abandoned uh-huh. it. That right. was my first attempt at a novel. Right. But by the time I got into my 30s and in my 20s and 30s and became a professional writer, uh, writing many short stories and, and articles and so forth, I said, well, someday I'm going to sit down and really do a novel and get it finished, but I, I don't want to do it until I'm absolutely certain I have something unique, something different, something that no one else has ever done before. And when I came up with the idea of Logan's Run as a result of a lecture at a, a UCLA uh, science fiction class uh, in which I was trying to demonstrate the difference between social fiction and science fiction, and I said social fiction, he runs off with his secretary and turns 40, and science fiction turns 40, and he has to turn himself into the government for euthanasia in an overpopulated world. I said that that took care of the explanation of what is social mm-hmm. fiction and what is science fiction. Mm-hmm. So I, I took the idea to George Clayton Johnson, who had done a lot of television for Twilight Zone and so forth, and George says, we should do it as a novel. And I said, I've never written a novel, but I said, this is the one I think I should work on. So we worked on it as a novel, and... Uh, Incredibly, we did it in three weeks. We did it in 21 days. Wrote the entire book, and then I took it alone up to San Francisco, rented a motel, and went over the whole thing and cut it and shaped it and made it pretty much stylistically mine. But the concept and the idea was a combination of mine and George Clayton Johnson, who passed away about a year ago. He's not with us. He'd he'd make a great interview for you, but he's not here. Uh, He's somewhere up there uh, listening to us right now, probably, (laughs) and and thinking, well, that wasn't the way it was at all. Right, right. But anyway, anyway, so Logan's Run became my first novel at the age of 37. I'd, I waited until I was 37 to write it, and uh, it immediately uh, became an almost overnight classic. It, it went into uh, several sequels around the world. It went into global editions. It went into television as a series. It went into comic book series. It went into audio. I did a version of it myself for audio, a, a shortened version uh, with a voiceover. And uh, I did two sequel novels. So that got published, Logan's World and Logan's Search. So it, it became a, a giant hit. So, you know, I was talking to Robert Block, the author of Psycho, and, and we were kidding. We were laughing about, about what writing is, about how you really don't recognize. Bob had done hundreds of stories and no one knew who he was. Right. And finally, Psycho came out. and Everybody said, oh, Robert Block. So Block said to me, you know, when I die in my tombstone, it's going to say, Robert Psycho Block. And you know what your tombstone's going to say? And I said, no. And it said, William F. Logan Ron Nolan. (laughs) I said, you're probably right. (laughs) Well, there are not many people who can have that after their names. It's a a calling card that I'm very proud of, yeah. Yeah. You sound like a man who doesn't have a lot of challenges when it comes to what you want to write. You have written a lot. I have written over 2,000 things and uh, 95 books. I'm going for 100 books. I want to get 100 wow. books to my credit. So you're not running out of ideas? No, I, I never have writer's block. I, I, I'm always three or four ideas behind what I want to do. Wow. And uh, a lot of my ideas came uh, come to me just as I'm going to sleep at mm-hmm. night. I, I'm in that twilight zone mm-hmm. between sleep and wakefulness, and it frees the subconscious to, mm-hmm. to act. And that's and that's when I came up with the idea of a, of a man waiting for a train on a lonely uh 
platform uh, and the train had, had killed his sister, and that's all I had in the dream. Right. I woke up and I say, well, what if the train was alive? What if it had taken on a sentient life of its own up in the mountains over the last hundred years, and it rolled down onto the plane and picked up this girl at the station and devoured her and spit her skull out along the tracks? I said, and he finds a skull of his sister. And, and I wrote a story called Lonely Train A-Coming, I Can Hear Its Cry, Lonely Train A-Coming, Taking Me to Die. And, and, and I wrote that story, and that that became probably my most famous short story. But you're right. I, I'm never lacking for ideas. I'm never lacking for emotion. I get excited every day. I wake up excited. Uh, you, you've got to write out of love. You know, Ray Bradbury was my friend for many years, and Ray said something I've never forgotten. He said, he said Bill, love what you write and write what you love. And, and, and I followed that dictum. And it, it's good advice. Is there a secret Nolan book hidden in a bureau drawer somewhere that hasn't been published yet? Yes, and, and there are two of them, and, and one of them will probably never be published. I'm a great Max Brand fan. Max Brand was the author of Destry Rides Again and Dr. Kildare, and, and uh, he wrote 300 books, and he was very prolific. And I, and I learned, I began collecting Max Brand when I was 14 years old, and uh, I've been collecting him all those years. And I did write a full biography of him called The Man Who Was Max Brand. And I never did a final version of it. I did a rough version of it, and it, it sits today unfinished. And I'm telling myself I have lost the fever for Max Brand that I had when I wrote it. I don't really want to go over it and revise it. So that will never be published. It's a complete biography of Max Brand, whose real name was Frederick Schiller Faust. He was half German and half Irish. Uh, so that's one. The other one that may or may not get published is a definitive book on Dashiell Hammett, the author of the Maltese Falcon that we've talked about a little bit. Uh, I wrote, I wrote a, it, it's called A Man Called Dash, because his name was Dashiell Hammett, Samuel Dashiell Hammett. He used the last two names for his writing. But when he was in the Army, he was Sam Hammett, and then he became Dashiell when he became a writer, Dash Hammett. So that, that may or may not be published. I got a $50,000 advance from, from Alfred A. Knopf some years ago on it, turned in a draft that they found had some problems, walked away from the deal, gave it up, came back to it years later, and now it's it's in manuscript form half typed and half and I don't know what I'm going to do with it I mean mm. it, it, I accepted their advance they want the book mm. the book is a definitive Hammond book it has everything ever anyone would ever want it's 500 pages wow. uh, and, it, and it's sitting there and it's a giant job to take that and revise it and bring it into modern form and I don't know whether I'm up to it or not but those are the two books that may never appear wow <laughs> that's quite a book that people are sitting and waiting for I know, I know. I, I, I'm a product of pop culture, uh, comic books, big little books, uh, Saturday matinees. Uh, that's my background. I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a product of popular culture. So when we, we enter the world of technology, I'm, I'm, I'm adrift. I'm at sea. Well, speaking <laughs> of that, I know you write more than just science fiction. You write a lot more than that. But the science fiction you write, did you feel looking back on it that you were naive now that you live in the future? <laughs> Writing about computers or machines. Yeah, Ray, Ray Bradbury. I, I mentioned that he was a good friend of mine. Ray, Ray and I were friends for uh, for over over fifty years. And I wrote a book called Nolan on Bradbury, and it won the Bram Stoker Award. And uh, and I, I got a I got a, a, a bronze uh, award uh, in Grandmaster's Award for 
for writing uh, Nolan on Bradbury, but Ray used to say to me, you know, Bill, we live in a science fiction world. Mm-hmm. All the things I wrote about Fahrenheit 451 and the Martian Chronicles, they're all they are all coming true. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can't write fast enough to stay ahead of the world. Right. It, it, he said, uh, uh, somebody brought me a computer the other day, and I looked at it, and I said, I don't know what to do with this thing. Uh, and so I threw it out the back door after a week and said, I don't do Windows. <laughs> and, and everybody laughed at that. But yes, it, it is a science fiction world we live in and and you have to be thinking pretty sharply to stay ahead of science itself i mean i i write a lot of science fiction but i'm i make damn sure that i'm uh, i'm ahead of the trend because otherwise i don't want to be washed away in the in the flood of what's already here are you like asimov that you stay away from writing about aliens he, he did it only one book, I think, that had aliens in them. No, I've written about aliens, uh, but, but, I, but I write about them in a different way. I write from the viewpoint of the alien who's uh, coming to Earth and, and, and having problems and trying to be understood by people. Uh, I've, I've done alien stories that way. Uh, I've, done, I've done vampires. I've done ghosts. I've done demons. Uh, I've done ch- uh, sh- shape-changed demons. But I always try to find a fresh way to do it, a, mm-hmm. a new way to... To present it to the big, because the public is, is they're up to their neck in zombies and vampires. Mm-hmm. So if you're going to do a zombie or a vampire story, it better be something different, something unique. And uh, mm-hmm. I just finished another vampire story last week uh, about a vampire family uh, that captured this girl from the village and take her up to the castle, and she's pregnant. And they say, "Oh, this is wonderful. We've never had a pregnant one before." And the and the mother says, "Oh, yes, it's uh, we're blessed to have her." Uh, and uh, she, uh, she looks like she's really full of blood there. And he said, "Yeah, if we if we're not too greedy, we can make her last a couple of weeks, uh, maybe even longer." And his little daughter says, "Oh, daddy, uh, I, I can't wait to get at her." And little six year old daughter, I can't wait to get at her. her fangs have already grown. And so I've, I'm creating a family portrait of loving people that love each other. And, and, and they're using a, a maiden from the village as food. Mm-hmm. And so, so that, that's a totally different aspect. I, I'm, I'm humanizing the vampire and then taking them into the realm of horror with what they're going to do. But, not, but they're not horrific people. The maiden says, you'll all suffer from this and uh, you're, you're nasty, horrible people. And the little girl says, don't call my family nasty. My mama's not nasty. She's a loving person. And I love my mother and I love my daddy and, and, and daddy rough are here and says we love you sweetheart so it's it's a vampire family of warmth and love and compassion who happens to eat people so i like to take something like a living train and have it eat the sister not just have her boarded but actually have the train eat her up i like to go that one step farther than people expect me to go and you have so far not run out of ideas. It's, it's amazing. Uh, oh, no, no. I'm, I'll have ideas as long as I'm living. I mean, I, I expect to be writing the day I die, you know. You mentioned briefly about poetry before. Is that something you write regularly or not at all? Oh, poetry. I, I just had my collected poems published uh, last year. Well, see how Fif- 50, 50 of my collected poems. I started writing poetry when I was nine years old, and uh, I still write it. The Passionate Producers podcast is produced twice a month for your enjoyment, and show notes are found at ulfvo.com. Come back often and feel free to add the podcast to your favorite RSS feed or iTunes. You can also follow me on Twitter at ulfvo. You will find all the links in the show notes.